A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky, soft, and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week... We're understanding how our genes work with geneticist Kat Arney and her book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Following a doctorate and subsequent research career in genetics, Kat Arney was until recently the Science Communications Manager for Cancer Research UK, where she translated science into plain English to help people understand more about the disease. Kat is also a science writer and a broadcaster whose writing has appeared in The Guardian, Science, New Scientist, BBC Online and Al Jazeera Online. She's presented several BBC Radio 4 science documentaries and programmes in the Costing the Earth series and is a regular presenter with The Naked Scientist and presents and produces The Naked Genetics monthly podcast. Kat's first book is Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So, Kat, welcome to the Little Atoms, first Little Atoms of 2016. Welcome. It's an honour to be here. Thank you. Let's jump straight in with that title. Tell us about Hemingway's Cats, how they influence this book and then what they are. Absolutely. So I got the idea for this book. I was sitting in a conference at the Royal Society because, I, you know, I get to go to scientific conferences. I still find them interesting. And I was sitting at the back doing my knitting, always knitting socks at conferences. And um, it was all about how genes work, how genes get turned on and off and the sort of the long range of control switches in the genome. So it was a very, very interesting conference, quite nerdy, I'll give it that. And a guy's up at the front doing a talk and uh, he puts up this picture of these six-toed cats and he says these are the Hemingway cats Ernest Hemingway had all these cats on his uh, estate down in the Florida Keys and they have six toes and it's a genetic mutation and he starts explaining all the work that he and his lab are doing mapping this genetic mutation very precisely now you sort of think well if you see a, a cat with six toes or a human with six toes or something like that you think that's that's a fault in the gene isn't it that's the toe gene I guess. And then he starts talking about it more and it's not. It's a mistake in a control switch Mm -hmm. that controls a signal that kind of says, do some stuff here in development. And it's miles away from the gene in molecular terms. You know, it's absolutely miles away. It looks like it's got nothing to do with this gene at all. And this kind of really triggered a train of thought in me. I was sitting at the back of the conference. I just started getting really excited. And I wrote down the words herding Hemingway's cats in the back of my programme for the conference. And started thinking, this is the idea for the book that I've been looking for, because I've been wanting to write a book for a very long time. I mean, since I was a kid, I wanted to write a book and just been searching for the idea. And I was thinking, we read about genes all the time. We hear about them in the news. You know, they, they make your eyes brown. They make you fat. They give you cancer. But how do they work? And it was this idea of trying to explain to the public, you know, this isn't a mistake in a toe gene. This is a mistake in a control switch miles away. You know, how does that 
work? How do we explain that? How do I explain that as a communicator mm-hmm. about genetics? And so from there, it sort of turned into a, a book about how genes work, which is a really small and well-defined topic. Uh... Well, we're gonna, the idea of the very concept that you raise there of the toe gene or whatever, the gene that gives us brown eyes or whatever, that's something that's going to come up again and again as we go through that interview and, and get to the bottom of that very idea. But let's first of all, let's just go right back to the beginning. Let's have a sort of little idiot's guide looking at this, you know, the idea of the Hemingway's cats, the toe gene on the cats not being in the gene. Um, the gene which we have ourselves about roughly around 20,000 of and DNA in ourselves, which we roughly have a two and a half metres of or something. What's the difference? So, yeah, people get very confused about this. And it's like, so it's the gene in the genes in the DNA. And, you know, so but, but, but what's a chromosome? Is a chromosome in the gene? Uh, but basically the way it works, and I sort of explains in the book, you know, there's a chunk of biochemistry at the mm-hmm. beginning where it's like, OK, people just, you know, here's the science bit. And the rest of it is just jokes and swearing yeah, and stories. Yeah. But, you know, you have two metres of DNA pretty much in every single cell of your body more or less. Which is an amazing... Which is incredible. And I I come to this later in the book. You know, how do you pack two metres of DNA into something that's smaller than the head of a pin? Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. You know, two metres in every single cell of your body. And that is about the rough phrase that goes around. It's like, you know, it's three billion letters of DNA. Again, you can argue about this because you have two copies of all your chromosomes, blah, 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 whatever. But yeah, three billion letters of DNA is your genome. And it's divided up into 23 pairs of chromosomes, one to 22, and then the X and the Y, which are the sexy ones. And so dotted along these strings of DNA, these chromosomes are genes. Now, what was really surprising when people started to really unpick the genome and and sequence the DNA, read the order of these letters, you know, like opening the book and Mm -hmm. actually reading it, was that most of it is just crap. Basically, it's it's just junk, it's just repetitive DNA. It's like pretty much less than 2% of your entire genome is actual honest-to-God genes. Mm -hmm. And the rest is, some of it is the switches that turn the genes on and off. Some of it is the structural stuff that you need to help your cells you know your chromosomes to divide when your cells divide and make sure that your dna is copied properly Mm -hmm. and all this kind of business and then loads of it is just crap really is crap and then there's probably a whole bunch that we just don't know what it does or is it i was going to say is it or is it that (laughs) That is a really good fight (laughs) but Let's take again a, a sort of step back and look at not the, the history of the idea of you know, the discovery of DNA, but later than that, the beginning of sequencing. So I wanted to get us to the idea of us having 20,000 genes, you know, because quite obviously, I think we thought we presumed it'd be a lot more than that. Yeah, I love this story. So I remember when I started working in a lab, it was just before the human genome had been sequenced. So I'm, I'm older than I look. But um, this was kind of the end of the 90s. And I remember very strongly learning that there's probably about 100,000 human mm-hmm. genes. That was rough. That was the figure that a lot of people had in their minds for being it's probably going to be about that kind of number. There wasn't a lot of rationale to that. And some people said, no, this is clearly wrong. It's clearly fewer. But this was the number that the people who didn't really know loads and loads and loads about the human genome, that was the number that was bandied around. And then... They started to sequence the human genome. And so, of course, you know, scientists being scientists had a bet about it. So these two guys at conference, 
Francis Collins and Ewan Burney, they're kind of big guys in the DNA mm. world. They got drunk at this conference in Cold Spring Harbour just before the DNA sequence, uh, the human genome, as it was kind of being sequenced. And they said, you know, all right, let's let everyone put a bet on this. Let's open a book, a sweepstake. And so they let people bet. And it was like something like a dollar to bet when it was first opened and then like $5 a year later and then $20 or something like that. Yeah, once they'd started yeah. to work so once, on it. So once things were starting to become clearer it got more expensive but they were like okay you know bet and people wrote it was this is old school you know people wrote it down in an exercise book and then finally when the genome the draft human genome was announced i think it was even the winner was over so the winner was something like 23 24,000 genes mm-hmm. and the actual number was like 22,000 and people had come in with you know 100,000 genes 150,000 genes way out I'm Helen Scales and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture. So I suppose at the point where we decided that, because again, take a step back and let's talk about when we first started sequencing anything's genes. So the first thing we did was a bacteria. Yeah, yeah, because they're small. I think the first thing was actually a phage, which is like a, Mm -hmm. a tiny virus that feeds on bacteria because it's sequencing is hard and, you know, it's it's old school. The original methods was developed it was developed in 1977 the year that star wars came out very topically but it was old school you were reading one letter at a time it used a lot of radioactivity it was a real pain in the balls basically Mm -hmm. and even you know for many many years that same technique was used it got faster it became automated people started using fluorescent dyes Mm -hmm. instead of radioactivity but it's pretty much the same thing you know one letter at a time imagine following your finger across a page reading every single letter and writing it down and it's only in very recent years that we've had the techniques the next generation where basically instead of one finger following a page mm-hmm. you just take the whole book you rip it up you just shove it in front of like these kind of electronic eyeballs it reads everything and then it pieces mm. it back together for you so that kind of stuff has revolutionized sequencing and it's meant that in the past i guess say five years we can just we can sequence all the things Mm -hmm. now it means we have more data than we know what to do with and that's kind of a problem i talk about a bit as well you know we just analyzing all the dna data we have now is impossible but from these these very early days you know even i guess it's it's not even 40 years ago just those tentative first junior reading book of life and now we have more code than we know what to do with. But I guess that first thing they sequenced had, although actually, you know, this doesn't necessarily follow, but it probably had not many genes. Yeah. And so we, I think, quite sensibly thought, well, we're more complicated than oh, a bacteria, yeah, yeah. right? So we're obviously going to have loads and loads and loads. Exactly. And I think it was just arrogance and that I think is where that 100,000 figure Mm -hmm. came from so you know we knew for a while you know how many genes these bacteriophage had yes it's barely any uh, tens of genes we know how many genes bacteria have say it's E. coli the everyone's favorite bacteria Mm -hmm. loads in your (laughs) tummy biologists use them all the time Um, that's got a couple of thousand genes and if you do kind of a scaling up you're like well you know, we must be more complicated than bacteria. Surely we've got loads. But to discover that the human genome only has about, and it, it's being revised down all the time, actually, mm-hmm. about 20,000 genes, maybe 22,000. That's about the same as a nematode worm or a fruit fly. I mean, we're not, 
we're no great yeah. shakes. I mean, wheat has 100,000 genes. Yeah. Was it the golden, have, delicious Yeah, plants have crap loads, <laughs> loads of genes. I don't know what they do with them all. But we are astonishingly efficient with the genes that we have. Mm-hmm. We build the most incredible processing brain that that exists on this planet. It turns out there's not really a particularly a correlation between the genes and the DNA. So, for instance, you know, we have a lot of DNA that we're going to get onto in a bit, debate whether or not it's junk <laughs> or not. But for How instance, much junk is in our trunk? <laughs> but other life forms that have the same, roughly the same amount of genes that we do have a lot less DNA yeah. for whatever reason. And the classic think. one is uh, pufferfish, yes. the Japanese pufferfish fugu. I worked briefly at the Sanger Centre. I was working at the Human Genome Mapping Project when I was an undergraduate. And the guys in the lab next door were sequencing the pufferfish genome. Their lab did smell a bit funny. They did have some in there. <laughs> I, labs do smell funny. Depends on the organism you're working on, like yeast labs. They're lovely. They smell like bakeries. <laughs> Fish labs, whiffy. Frog labs, disgusting. Yeah, not good. I digress. But yeah, they were sequencing the pufferfish genome for the reason is that a pufferfish, it's a vertebrate, it's mm-hmm. got a backbone, so if humans, they've pretty much got all the kinds of stuff yeah. that mammals and, and humans, uh, humans and mammals obviously, that more complicated organisms have. So they've got all the same kind of genes as well. They've got pretty much the same genes, but their genome is an eighth of the size of the human genome. It's it's incredibly compact and efficient. And the question is, you know, how are they doing it? And then that leads you onto the question about, well, is there anything then special about all the extra DNA that we've got that's sort of been turned up through all these studies of of the human genome? You know, if less than 2% of our genome is actually genes, then Mm -hmm. what the hell is the rest of it? And we'll come to that and on. But let's um, let's just stick with us not having that many genes comparatively why let's talk about the idea that there's 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 <laughs> certainly bottlenecks in in modern humans near extinctions and things um but why what for what reasons would we only have about 20,000 and you know some random plant have near 100,000 so i was told you never ask a why question in biology because the answer to a why question in biology is because it just evolved like that, stupid. It just evolved like that. You know, the, the pressures that go onto species makes them evolve. The ecological pressures, the pressures of, of mating, of food, of starvation, of population collapses, of natural disasters, all of this influences the genomes of species. And plants are a very odd thing in that plants seem somehow to be able to cope with their genomes being duplicated over time so a lot of plants or rather to start with like the human genome we have two copies of every gene you get one from mum one from dad plants they can have like four copies of their genome or three copies wheat's weird they have like three copies Mm -hmm. of everything uh they're very odd so plants seem to be able to tolerate that kind of duplication Mm -hmm. event whereas mammals can't we don't know why well, in the terms duplication of, 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 of some the genes is, is part of is some of our you know some of the genetic diseases that yeah, we would but know this is like instance. wholesale like this mm-hmm. just it's like copy everything and just keep it mm-hmm. uh, and somehow they can tolerate that and there's some quite interesting times with cancer because cancer's you know a, a microcosm of evolution things going really wrong with the genome but as to why humans have twenty thousand why do we have the size of genome we do there's a bit of like it's just evolved that way. Mm-hmm. 
and um, we don't breed very fast or very much <laughs> some of us less than others but you know we don't breed very fast very much our generation times are long mm-hmm. we've had these really severe population bottlenecks the human species nearly went extinct many times we are so lucky to be mm-hmm. here but that's meant that we have accumulated the scars of these events in our genome mm-hmm. and whether that's kind of a whole bunch of crap that we've accumulated that we don't need stuff that you know when people were mating with Neanderthals or Denisovans, all this kind of stuff. We got a bit of that in there. Never managed to get rid of it. It's easier to get stuff in your genome than it is to get rid of it, mm-hmm. basically. So stuff that just ended up there, just kind of kept. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kat Arnie and we're talking about her book Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work. And Kat, yeah, let's get on to junk DNA then finally. We've sort of previewed it plenty of times already. Is it junk? Is it not? First of all, just perhaps give us a sort of brief overview of what it is. God, so junk DNA is the most overhyped, most poorly used word in genetics apart from epigenetics which also irritates the living shit and we'll out get of onto me that later uh, people use it wrong so junk dna was this it was this concept first coined in the 70s by a korean scientist called susumu ono now actually i talked to other geneticists and they say yeah it was probably in pretty much common usage you know there's evidence that francis crick out of watson and crick he was using these terms in cambridge in the 60s there's this idea that there's a substantial chunk of the human genome of other genomes that is just junk it's just there it's not doing anything Mm -hmm. now ono's whole thing was that he did a, a sort of back of the envelope calculation and he said look if a bacteria like e coli the biologist's favorite workhorse that's got x much dna and we know it has this many thousand genes Mm -hmm. so we do a little scaling up because we knew at that time in the 70s how much dna was in a human cell we didn't know how many genes there were but a kind of a back of the envelope calculation says that we should have thousands and thousands and thousands of genes and like that that's not right And then also he knew that looking at other organisms, you know, things like salamanders had even bigger genomes, much more DNA. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you scale it up. It's like, well, what's a salamander need with like three million genes? This just doesn't work. So he figured out that, okay, there can't be like millions and millions of genes in every genome. It can't directly scale like Mm -hmm. that. So it means that some genomes must have more just junk in them and he wrote this paper it's called so much junk in our genome and other genomes smaller more compact genomes like the pufferfish they must have less and since then it's been a bloody big argument really figuring out what it is and 
the argument finally hit the headlines, I guess, in 2012. So there was a, this is, as a geneticist, it's amazing. It's like, oh my God, genomics is in the newspapers. Wow. And so badly covered. But anyway, this group, massive, massive international collaboration called ENCODE. I remember that uh, on the Twitter. Oh, on the Twitter. Everyone was going absolutely, completely losing their shit over it. Um, It's the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. And what they set out to do was basically map all the stuff that's not genes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they didn't do all the stuff that's not genes. They did kind of a chunk of it. They did because a lot of it is really, really hard to look at. The stuff that's very, very, very repetitive and probably structural. And it's just impossible to sequence properly. It's like trying to read something that's just the same word repeated over and over. Mm -hmm. You lose your place, your fingers slip. It's, It's very hard to do. So they sort of looked at all this stuff. And they said, OK, let's look at this stuff and see, does anything, any molecule stick to this DNA? Does any of it look like it's a functional thing? Like, is it a control switch? Does it look like it's doing something useful? Is it, is it making something? Uh, is it making this message, this, this related molecule called RNA, which is read out of DNA? And they concluded that 80% of the genome is doing something on just this sort of biochemical evidence. You've just said there, just in that, in that description, whether or not it was useful. And one of the questions I wrote down was, can junk DNA be useful? But then I've sort of crossed that out and put, what does that even mean? Yeah. What, does, what does it mean for it to be useful? Why does that matter? Yeah, so there's loads, of, there's loads and loads of great analogies here. I mean, just something just sticking to something doesn't mean it's a function. Yeah, it doesn't you can mean get, that's actually doing anything yeah, you can, useful You can get not. chewing gum on your shoe. It doesn't yeah. mean that the function of your shoe is to stick chewing gum mm-hmm. or the function of chewing gum is to be stuck to your shoe. It's just chewing gum happened to be in the same place yeah. as your shoe and you walk through it. There's lots of those kind of random interactions yes cells are complicated there's stuff going on all the time there's things whizzing around there's molecules you know and you've got two meters of dna crammed into this tiny space with all the molecules Mm -hmm. that make life work stuff's gonna happen you know it's like the most crazy club ever you know stuff is gonna go on in there some of it may not be intended and also the other thing is that just finding an evidence of an interaction doesn't mean it's doing a biological function you know you could go into an office and someone's sitting in front of a computer are they looking at a spreadsheet or are they looking at facebook Mm -hmm. you know one of those is functional (laughs) in terms of the job of the office and the other one is not but they look to all intents and purposes of the same thing and to mm-hmm. find out which one is actually functional you have to do a lot more analysis you have to find out you know is this person doing a useful job what are their outputs is this doing something important for the company mm-hmm. and again you know if it's the social media person yeah they should be on facebook you know you need to ask some really detailed questions that idea of 80 percent that they came up with has yeah, been sort of massively works. massively yeah. reduced <laughs> subsequently yeah um Broadly, they got absolutely shot down. So they kind of came out all guns blazing. They put a lot of money into this, millions Mm -hmm. and millions and millions of pounds, thousands of people working on this stuff. They came out with, it was 30 papers published simultaneously. I mean, this was a big thing. Mm -hmm. All the science bloggers were going nuts for it. All the newspapers going nuts for it. And so they, I feel like they kind of had to prove that they'd found something really big. And also the intelligent design lobby and people like that, you know, they're going, see, see, all the genome is useful. It must be designed for something because junk DNA is really an argument 
against design. It's mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, it's just a bunch of crap that's just there. This, this it, demonstrates it, yeah. that evolution is just <laughs> Evolution has and... no idea yeah, yeah, what it's yeah. doing. It just yeah. does stuff. So it got jumped on by all of those people as well. Um, and then the actual people who knew about genomics and evolution and didn't just know about how to run computer programs analysing mm-hmm. biochemical data when, you know, guys, <laughs> this is crap. And so the, the ENCODE people, they have over the past couple of years, they've kind of gone, okay, how about, how, how about 50%? 50%. We'll go with 50 The latest analysis, there's a group in Oxford, Ponting. They published a paper last year suggesting it's like, I don't know, it's maybe like 8 to 10% of the genome at the moment we can prove is genuinely mm-hmm. functional. It's genuinely doing something that's, that's useful um, and you can really properly pin a function on it. That number will probably go up. And there's loads of exciting techniques like CRISPR, these kind of these genome scissors. You can chop out bits of the Mm -hmm. genome. You can cut DNA up, stick it together again. That's how we're going to start finding out what DNA actually Mm -hmm. does. You know, you can now we've got sequencing. We can read everything. You know, we can read the book. And then we've got really precise scissors and we can start cutting out paragraphs and going, okay, what happens when you do this and do that? It's going to be a pain. That stuff is hard. And it takes time and you can only do it, you know, it will scale up and it will get faster. But, you know, it's not as easy as just publishing a whole bunch of wonderful papers of your computer analysis. There was one idea of a, of a use for, for junk DNA, which, which I thought was quite fun, although it's probably nonsense. This idea of it being like a sort of bubble wrap. Yeah. So that's, that's been a really persistent idea. So, you, you know, your genome is under assault all the time, just... Just mostly, actually, mm-hmm. the most damaging thing that you're doing to your DNA right now is breathing. We use oxygen, it generates free radicals, these sort of damaging molecules. They damage your DNA all the time. have constantly having to patch it up and repair it. But, you know, your, your DNA is, is under assault. Mm-hmm. And there's the carcinogens, you know, things in tobacco smoke, UV from the sun, all sort of, you know, all sorts of things that damage your DNA. And there's this idea that if you have all this just junk this stuff then maybe some of that will mop up the damage as opposed to the precious 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 gene now i mean i i do think it's one of the most amazing things in biology that we don't get more cancer i work for a cancer charity and we sort of we're getting towards one in two people being diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime now so you know over over an entire lifetime Mm -hmm. starting from now there's a one in two chance of being diagnosed with cancer and people are like wow that's bad isn't it and i'm like well yeah it's bad but it could be so much worse every single day your Mm -hmm. dna is being damaged all the time it's being patched up it's being repaired and that's the miracle that we don't just like you know get cancer straight out of the gate but where it falls down is that other species get more or less cancer organisms with much more compact genomes don't get loads and loads of cancer and they're not they don't you know puffer fish don't smoke yeah, i was gonna say puffer you fish know, until they, it ends up in a restaurant they're, they're pretty right. healthy yeah. but you know they're still metabolizing mm-hmm. they're still the kind of the, the regular hurly-burly of stuff is mm-hmm. still going on and unless they've got other mechanisms there i digress but there was a fascinating paper recently about why elephants don't get cancer they've got sort of a different mechanism of protecting their their genomes but yeah organisms with more compact genomes aren't riddled with cancer or constantly you know suffering mutation so I don't know. I mean, there's another idea that maybe all the junk is spacing stuff out or, you know, when you start chopping up bits of the genome and sticking them around the place, I don't know. I I think it's just, it's 
just there because it's there. It's evolved and it's there. I'm Michael Brooks. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We've spent some time talking about junk DNA, and we're going to get on to how genes work, but perhaps we should pause again and, and talk about how DNA works. So let's perhaps go, <laughs> let's return to the, uh, the central dogma. Oh, God, yeah. I, I love the thing. So the central dogma, this is a term coined by Francis Crick out of Watson and Crick. And he, it turns out he didn't actually know what the word dogma meant when he coined it. But the central dogma of biology is this idea that DNA is like the information, the, the recipe book, the instruction mm. manual. And when genes are used, they're read. This is like uh, you, you copy out a recipe onto a piece of paper. And the biological paper is this molecule called RNA, which is very similar to DNA, but it's, it's sort of a message. And then that RNA shuffles off into the rest of the cell and is basically read by molecular cooks to make proteins. And these proteins are the, the stuff that builds you, you know, the, the keratin in your skin that makes your skin work, the little things in your brain that make your brain cells work, the things at the back of your eyeballs that enable you to sense light. These are all proteins. All your body is made up of, of proteins. Mm-hmm. They're the structural stuff and the signalling stuff and the stuff that turns genes on and off. All of these things are proteins and they're all encoded by genes. And the idea of the central dogma was that the information that's in DNA, it gets written into RNA, then that goes to make a protein. And that this is a one-way process. So you can't ever send information from protein back to RNA. You can't take a protein, a cell can't take a protein and construct an RNA that would then mm-hmm. have the information that tells you how to make that protein. It's entirely a one-way process. RNA to protein, never protein mm-hmm. to RNA. And then for a very long time there was this idea that it also that you could never go from RNA back to DNA. Again, you could DNA makes RNA, makes protein. Mm-hmm never back the other way. But then, again, this changed when researchers, uh, it's Temin and, oh, God, my brain, it's the end of the week, come on. Um, Howard Temin and the other guy, they won a Nobel Prize for it, it's fine. Uh, so they discovered this molecule called reverse transcriptase mm-hmm. in viruses. So these are viruses, uh, I think things like HIV, if I'm wrong, someone will correct me, things called retroviruses that can basically, their RNA, their genetic code is message, mm-hmm. and they encode this molecule that writes the RNA back into DNA in the genome. And this is how they invade their Mm -hmm. host genomes and kind of make loads of copies of themselves. And this was absolutely revolutionary, you know, discovering that RNA can turn itself back into DNA. And of course, you know, biologists straight away are like, well, this is brilliant. Let's use this as a tool in the lab. And then discovering that actually a lot of the human genome, a lot of all sorts of genomes, are made up of these long, long dead viruses, retroviruses, and these things called transposons, these jumping genes, that have just copied themselves and shoved themselves back in again into the genome. So most of your genome is these long, long dead viruses mm-hmm. that are just just there. You know, I mean, if you believe in creationism, like, God really, really, really loves retrotransposons. Even more than he loves beetles. Yeah, God loves beetles. God bless the beetles. Let's get towards how genes work then. So I said right at the top of the show, the idea of the, you know, I picked up on the idea of the toe gene. Mm. And, you know, anybody that's read a newspaper will will recognise the idea, you know, there's a gene for cancer, there's a gene for 
criminality, the genes of homosexuality, for depression, whatever. And like most of this is nonsense. So what do genes do if they don't do that? I mean, like, like I've just said, genes are in the DNA. They are the instructions that tell cells to make an RNA. And in many cases, that then tells cells to make a protein. So genes don't give you cancer or make you fat. They encode molecules, RNA or protein, that does something in your cells or in your body that affects a change that results in that. Mm -hmm. So say, for example... You know, people talk about the genes for obesity or whatever. No, it's maybe it's a gene that is a, a variation, a variation on a gene, say, that makes something in the brain, a neurotransmitter, a little molecule that sends signals in the brain. And maybe one version of it is slightly more effective or binds better to its target. Mm-hmm. And when you eat something sugary, it sends more signals. You know, it's, it's just more enthusiastic network in your brain mm-hmm. that's triggered by, say food or drugs or you know whatever it is but it's not a gene for addiction or obesity or Mm -hmm. anything like that and where where it gets slightly complicated is that there's a division to be made between some of the faulty genes that we know are linked to diseases as opposed to sort of the genetic variations that make us all unique and give you blue eyes or brown eyes or, or whatever. So, you know, we hear about things like the cystic fibrosis gene, which, again, is not a gene that gives you cystic fibrosis because, you know, you've got the cystic fibrosis gene. Mm. I've got the cystic fibrosis gene. It's a gene called CFTR that helps to shuttle salt in and out of the cells of our bodies. When there's a mistake in it, that results in the disease cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, a, probably a few hundred examples of diseases like this. They're called Mendelian diseases after Mendel, the father of genetics, where it's it's one gene pretty much uh, with one mistake in it, and that's one disease. And you can kind of, you can find it, you can map it. We know what's gone wrong. So it's... are there any examples of one where if you have the gene, rather than it being a gene that we already have that is damaged in some way, is the one where, like, again, when you talk about, oh, the, the gene for alcoholism or the gene where I know we've already sort of poo-pooed this idea, but is there anything where a gene you have but I don't might make a difference? Well, this is the thing, is that you've got the same genome as I have. You've mm. probably, you may have some things missing. You may, I mean, this this is a really whole other interesting area about we're all walking around with gene variations in us that should be incredibly harmful yeah. or gene faults or all sorts of things that they're just not expressed in us because other stuff is compensating. Mm-hmm. I mean, biology is just... It's so robust. It's just everything gets bodged together to make it work. But yeah, in terms of things like, uh, you know, you're talking about alcoholism, obesity, cancer, heart disease, uh, even just like the colour of your eyes, the colour of your hair, your height, uh, your intelligence, your IQ, you know, anything that's even vaguely complicated mm-hmm. and can't be pinned on one gene is many, many genes working together. It's many variations. It's kind of, it's turning dials up and down rather than flicking a switch and going, yep, that works. No, that doesn't work. It's like, ooh, you're a little bit better at these things or you're a little bit worse at these things. You're slightly better at metabolizing fat. You're slightly better at kind of learning. And it's many, many Mm. genes all working together. Let's talk about the environment then, because that's obviously the other classic thing. And actually, to get us into that, let's talk about... Well, I suppose evolution, because 
although evolution obviously works over a much longer period of time. But the one I sort of wanted to, to sort of point us towards with my, with my last question was like something like the idea of lactose intolerance, for instance, which is obviously something that we had and then a bunch of us didn't have, you know, almost the next day or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Know. Actually, that, that's a really great example because, um, so, you know, I don't know about you, but God, I love cheese. I love cheese. I love cheese. I'm suspicious of people that don't like cheese. I, I, I think the best way I've ever heard cheese described as uh, it's milk's leap toward immortality. <laughs> which I think is beautiful. I love cheese. But the only reason that I can eat cheese is because I am a mutant. So when you're a, when you're a baby, you obviously need to be able to digest the sugars that are in milk, the lactose, because you get your milk from your mum, that's what you live on. And then when you sort of get weaned, in most mammals, in most mammals that drink milk, um, mammals all drink milk, uh, fact. But yeah, they actually switch off that gene. Mm-hmm that enables you to digest lactose. And it's only because we have a mistake in a lot of the the European Western population Mm -hmm. that actually enables our our lactase, the gene that breaks down lactose, enables us to to digest lactose and eat cheese. Oh, my God. And there's a substantial proportion of the world, you know, a lot of the um, people in Asia, they don't have this variation. And so they are lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. So they can't, you know, they can't drink milk, they can't eat cheese. But this was like a thing that happened, you know, presumably an accident, a, yep. free, a, a freak of yep. a freak of evolution. But then, of course, meant that we'd begun to herd cows and exactly. suddenly we'd got this ready food stuff, which meant we ain't got to go out of a spear and kill things. So it's it's and the then... biology and the culture and the agriculture is all working together. So it's, I think the lactose... Lactase persistence is about 10,000 years ago, and it's about the dawn of agriculture. And you can kind of go, well, you know, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you discover that you can drink cow's milk, you're going to start farming cows, aren't you? So, and it's also trying to get your head around the time scales. I mean, in fact, in evolutionary terms, 10,000 years really isn't very long. That's been incredibly quick because you can see it's an incredibly useful mutation to have. If you can drink milk suddenly or or cheese or whatever it is, you can suddenly get loads more protein than your neighbours who are still scrabbling around, you know, berries, grains. (laughs) Enjoy your paleo diet, people. I am going to eat cheese. You can suddenly get more protein. You become bigger, stronger. You basically just go kill the hunter-gatherers and uh, and take over, you know, take over their women, spread your successful lactase persistence genes. And that's how evolution works. You know, the good stuff stays, some of the bad stuff stays because, you know, nothing is perfect. You're not the best species of... I mean, no offence, Neil, you know, you're lovely, but you're not... The pinnacle of human creation, and neither Some people might disagree. And neither am I. You know, I'll, I'll put my hand up and say, you know, none of us are the bestest, bestest thing. We're good enough to get through. We've got mm-hmm. some good stuff. We've got some bad stuff. You know, if you have babies, you'll pass that on. Mm-hmm. The good stuff, the bad stuff. The good stuff will tend to stay. Some of the bad stuff will stay. And a lot of stuff is just like me whatever you know neutral evolution it just sticks around drifts about sometimes there's more of it sometimes there's less of it this idea that evolution is this engine of natural selection always always winnowing 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 Mm. is really misleading and again that's why we have so much junk in our genomes there's just no you know if it's not hurting just just leave it A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? 
Needing health insurance? United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Kat Arney and we're talking about her book Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work. And so Kat, we've talked about DNA, we've talked about genes, and in that second part we sort of discussed the idea of you know genes not necessarily being a thing that causes a disease, but certainly obviously playing a part in cancer and diabetes and I want to get sort of deeper into how, and specifically, genes have genes have switches. They do things by either being on or off. Let's get into talking about the switches. And I suppose I want to start talking about a couple of people. You've talked, we've mentioned, as always gets mentioned in these discussions, James Watson and Francis Crick, out of Watson and Crick, as, as you've said a couple <laughs> of times, which I love, because it makes them sound like they're in a band. And so I want to talk about Francois Jacob and uh, Jacques, ah, Jacques Monod, Monod. Who, yeah. who don't often get discussed in these. Sort of no, things. so so Jacob and Mono, they were just an absolute classic pairing in biology. So this uh, this all started in Paris in the sixties. Now in the sixties, Paris was like the place for molecular biology. They it was just a sort of a, a golden time when they just got the right people, and Paris was this intellectual firestorm that was going on there and it's very sad actually to see and, and talk to French scientists and so they feel that like the, the funding is going and it's lost this this intellectual passion that was there in the 60s and you know French science is kind of you know not what it was but yeah Jacobo Mono they um, were working with a guy called André Loif 
Um, they were basically studying bacteria to try and find better antibiotics. Yeah, antibiotic resistance, big problem, all this kind of stuff. And they got into the idea of, so we know how many genes are in bacteria. How do they get turned on and off? Now, even back then in the 60s, bacteria were still pretty complicated. Mm. And, you know, contemplating, you know, the thousands of genes that were presumably in a, in a human cell or a mammalian cell was like, whoa. OK, let's start really small. And they started with this thing called a bacteriophage, which I sort of mentioned earlier. And these are these tiny viruses that have just a handful of genes and they infect bacteria. And they can do different things in bacteria. They can either lie low, they can just sort of sit in the bacterial genome and wait quietly. Or they can suddenly start making loads and loads and loads of new viruses and then they explode <laughs> out of the bacteria like a sort of alien style. And they wanted to know what is the switch between, you know, the lying low and the exploding everywhere <laughs> virus. And they worked out really it was absolutely incredible because they didn't have all the tools and the sequencing and all this they were really flying blind here they worked out that there was this kind of repressor that sat on the genes for the exploding thing and it sat there and it kept the genes switched off and then when the bacteria were exposed to ultraviolet light the repressor was broken down the switch is kind of thrown and all the virus genes start getting switched on and they make the new viruses and the viruses explode everywhere and so they, they really clearly showed this, what's called the genetic switch, that genes can be off and genes can be on. And mm -hmm. what controls them is proteins. This repressor is a protein, is protein molecules either sitting on them or not sitting on them. Now, that was a really, really simple system. So that's the idea of, you know, a, a handful of genes in a virus, in a bacteria, you know, on, off. It's very simple. You can see how it works. You can draw a beautiful diagram. Very easy. And then when you start to think about more complex genes, like uh, mammalian genes, human genes, it's not just like bells and whistles. It's, you know, bells, whistles, miniature monkey with symbols. You know, it's really complicated. And we're starting to unpick it now. And the, the big challenge, trying to understand how, how human genes work or mammalian genes or any kind of more complicated genes, is that to come back to it you've got two meters of dna in your cells it's packed up it's wrapped around proteins you know it's wrapped around these little ball shaped proteins you it's an incredible feat of packing it's all going to be coiled super coiled squished up all this kind of stuff but to read the genes you have to locally unpack it untwist it get in there shuffle everything about start making the rna it's difficult stuff so for, for our genes you have to kind of get factors in there, again, protein molecules, that do this unpacking, that do this activation, that recruit the reading machinery in there. And that's where the idea of these control switches comes in. So these control switches help to turn genes on at the right time. And this is absolutely crucial. I mean, if you're a bacteria, you're just one cell, you've got one set of genes, you're doing your bacteria thing. You know, limited number of challenges you're going to have to respond to in your lifetime. Nothing as complicated as, you know, you just basically have to like eat and reproduce. Not too complicated. You're made up of trillions of cells, hundreds of different types of cells. You've got skin cells, liver cells, brain cells, fat cells, toenail cells, all these different types of cells. They all have the same DNA in them, but they're all using a slightly different suite of genes. 
So they're turning on, you know, your skin cells are turning on the genes that make the solid keratin that, you know, keeps the outside out and your inside in. Um, your toenails are making a different sort of keratin. Your eyeballs are making a whole different bunch of proteins. So that challenge of turning the right genes on in the right place mm-hmm. at the right time, that's where you need these switches. And sort of I go through a lot of very complicated explanation in the book which I won't do now but broadly this is where it kind of brings us back to the Hemingway cats is that it's the control switch that's wrong in the Hemingway cats so the control switch is uh it's for a gene called sonic hedgehog best name gene ever which is responsible for kind of making a gradient across a developing paw or hand in the womb as a a baby or a you know baby cat is growing kitten it makes a gradient that says you know do some finger stuff here maybe this one's a little finger that one's going to be a thumb and other ones in between and so you need to turn that gene on at the right time in the right place and turn it off again and there's all these switches there's these switches that do it and when one of those switches is faulty that's when you end up with the six toes Mm -hmm. because it goes on but it kind of doesn't go off in the right way so you end up with an extra toe because it's just like I'm just making stuff here, just making stuff, and it makes an extra toe. Let's look at another real-world example of that happening because of environmental causes. Um, let's talk about sticklebacks. Yeah. So this was at the same conference. This is a really great story. So this is a story about the, uh, the little three-spine sticklebacks. They live all over the world, these little sticklebacks, the little kind of fish. And uh, you get them living in the oceans, and you get them living in glacial lakes up in the mountains all over the place. Now, originally, they were all just living in the ocean. And they go up into the the lakes, they go up the river to spawn. And at some point towards the end of the last ice age, again, about 10,000 years ago, some sticklebacks were, like, up in the lakes and they got stuck because, you know, the environment changed and they couldn't get back down. So they're stuck in this lake. And this happened to quite a lot of different populations Mm -hmm. of sticklebacks in these little lakes. Now, the key thing to know about sticklebacks is the ones that live in the sea, they've got like this kind of really spiny pelvis. They have these fins, spiky fins that come out of their pelvis and help them to ward off predators. And because there's loads of predators in the sea, you're just going to get eaten all the time, basically. So they've got these spiky fins. All the sticklebacks in the freshwater lakes don't have either a pelvis or the fins. And this is incredible. This is a big chunk of stuff missing you know it's it's not just like oh their fins are a bit smaller you know that looks like the gradual classic evolution sort of thing it's like they've just got no bloody pelvis it's gone and that's because there's they don't have the same predation up in the lakes you know there's no need to have all guns blazing if you're not going to get eaten and what this guy david kingsley from stanford discovered is that all the different populations of freshwater sticklebacks they're all missing a control switch for a gene called PIT-X1, which is involved in making the pelvis. And, you know, this tiny, tiny switch is missing, and so that they just don't make a pelvis. And it's one single thing that's made an enormous change mm-hmm. to the anatomy of these fish. And I think this is something that people don't really grasp about evolution, is that, yeah, sometimes it creeps. You know, you get slightly smaller, slightly taller, slightly bigger, whatever, slightly different coloured, um, sort of very slow changes over time. But the idea that just by fiddling with the switches, you can make really dramatic changes to species is absolutely incredible. And there, there's many more examples where just very, very small changes to mm-hmm. the switches, not necessarily genes themselves, but to the switches, is making a difference. 
I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Another example of that I want to talk to you, but actually we'll get there, we'll get there gradually. I want, let's talk about, in fact we'll probably finish off talking about that other example, but let's, <laughs> let's start talking about chimps. Now everybody knows that we share a lot of DNA, a lot of genes with a chimpanzee. It's about like, yeah, nine, oh, I, lo- I love that statistic though, it's like you share 99% of your genes with a chimp, but only 50% with your mother. Like how does it work there? <laughs> But yeah, we're we're broadly we're broadly pretty much like ninety nine percent chimp. And I suppose again, it sort of follows that if two species share a huge amount of the same genes, a huge amount of the same DNA, that you'd automatically think that they would inevitably look the same. But this doesn't necessarily have to be the case. No, I mean that's the thing, and this is why it's about the switches. It's about when you're turning the genes on and off. For example, I haven't written about it in the book, but there's well-documented examples of uh, that baby chimps, their faces look a lot like human faces, whereas an adult chimp, you know, they've got the kind of the longer muzzle and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's because the genes that are involved in shaping the face, it's all the same genes. It's just that in the chimps, they're kind of going on and off at different times in their development and growing these different structures. But it's all the same stuff under the hood. But yeah, you know, the idea is that we have primate genes, we share them with chimps, our, our closest relatives, but we have human switches. Chimps have chimp switches, you know, gorillas have gorilla switches, bonobos have bonobo switches. And there was this weird idea for a long time that you would find control switches by looking for things that were the same. And I, when I was in the lab, we were doing this, we were looking for stuff that was the same between mouse and human, because that would tell us the important stuff. And actually, yeah, that tells you some important things about how genes can be controlled but it doesn't tell you what makes species different and if that's the question you're asking you need to start looking for what's different between species rather than what's the same and that was it it sounds so obvious but it was a real conceptual switch in Mm -hmm. the field so is there anything else strikingly different between a chimpanzee and a a human man are we are we going to go there I've been led to believe that men have penises and um, also chimpanzees have penises. And uh, if you were to look at a chimpanzee's penis or a mouse penis, anything like that, you would see that it has these kind of knobbly, they're called spikes, but they're kind of knobbles on it. Either way, they sound unpleasant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not quite, you know, ribbed for pleasure. It's like spiked for um, probably quite a lot of discomfort in intercourse. The idea is, is that species that are promiscuous, you know, like, I mean, chimps will just bang anything that moves, mm. basically. It's, it's very much, you know, wham, bam, thank you, lady chimp. They have these spikes, which is meant to help them, you know, <laughs> cling on uh, to the job in hand. Human males, I've been led to believe, have very smooth penises. And so, again, it was David Kingsley that did this work, I think, and uh, decided to look at what are the differences in the control switches between chimps and humans that might explain some of these differences? And they found this key difference close to a gene for something called the androgen receptor. Mm -hmm. And this is a uh, molecule that receives signals from the male hormone testosterone. And it was there in chimps, in mice, in, you know, kind of more promiscuous species, missing in humans. And they were like, ooh, is this the penis spike switch? And it turns out that yes, it is. So when they, they took this piece of DNA and they put it into human foreskin cells growing in the, in the lab, 
and it switched back on the androgen receptor. Mm -hmm. You know, it reactivated the program that presumably is responsible for penis spikes. And, you know, luckily... Luckily they didn't test it on that. Yeah, no, luckily they didn't. And this also shows that it's quite easy to lose stuff in evolution as well, thank goodness. But, you know, you can tell... This is another thing about evolution. You can tell just so stories Mm -hmm. all the time, and often they're bollocks, or in this case, close to. So the idea, if you were to tell a story about it, is that maybe there was a, a lucky early primate, one of our ancestors, who had this mutation, had a lovely smooth penis, and the ladies were like, oh, hello, Uh, (laughs) I like this, this is quite nice, let's do that again. And then that would start spreading, because it's Mm -hmm. very closely tied to reproduction, that would definitely start spreading through the population. Mm -hmm. And then maybe if you thought, well, actually that was quite nice, maybe I'll, I'll do that with you again, because that was quite nice, you know, and maybe that encouraged pair bonding and the more monogamous human style of relationships mm. compared to chimps you know because chimps have these sort of troop hierarchies and and very promiscuous mm-hmm. social structures i don't know you can tell as many just so stories as you like um but certainly you know i uh, if i'm ever lucky enough to look at a penis i do often think of that i think of those genetic switches and be thankful and i'm thankful i am switches. thankful well there's loads of stuff in this book that we haven't covered and what we particularly haven't covered is epigenetics which you're, you're a bit grumpy about <laughs> in the book well and grumpy. you know you go on to talk about lots of you know the, the modern advances in in genetics and snipping and stuff and and where we're going to go to in in future but i think you know we're pretty much out of time and i think i think spiky penises is probably a good place for us to finish so i'd say there, there's a lot of stuff in the book and it's it's been really nice to actually because it's it's written all as first person interviews i mm-hmm. went round and talked to all these people i said just tell me some stories tell me what do you think tell me what's interesting tell me what's weird you know what what makes you think go home evolution you're mm-hmm. drunk and drawing all of this out you know with it, it's my personal journey through trying to understand all this stuff and so hopefully um it'll take people on a, a journey through through trying to find out a bit more about how they work so we've been talking about herding Hemingway's cats, understanding how our genes work by Kat Arney. Kat, thank you very much for telling us about it. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.